Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that's begun the reconciliation process. My name's Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. And we are joined from New York once again by Patrick Cook. Hello, Patrick. Hello, Corey and Steve. Uh, how are we? Yeah, pretty well. I, I, I took three days off work to watch the cricket and it got finished in two days. It's like when you have a meeting that's cancelled. I felt like I kind of gained the day that I spent reading Adam Tooze's book on the Nazi economy, which is very worth reading. Yeah, I've read that one before, actually. Um, mm. That's fun. Uh, my favorite sport, <laughs> baseball, is uh, if pitchers and catchers are starting to one springs training is started, and you know, coming back and the Mets look like they're not going to be complete shit this year. <laughs> so that's exciting. One of America's other national pastimes, of course, is wrangling in the Senate. Joe Biden's COVID relief bill is going to be passed by reconciliation. We're going to talk about what that is, why it's a bit messed up, and what implications there are. Usually to get stuff passed in the Senate, you need to pass filibuster and need 60 votes, which is hard, especially when you're the Democrats and you have 50 votes and you can't get 10 Republicans to agree with you that today's Saturday, let alone actually try and get them on a meaningful bill to change the country. So what um, the Democrats said they were going to use to pass the what what is the official name is the American Rescue Act, but it's a lot of the COVID relief stuff that we've talked Patrick on previous podcasts. It's to use this pro- process called reconciliation that allows you essentially to pass finance related bills with a simple majority of fifty one votes rather than sixty votes. And I was quite excited reading on the history of this that essentially the reason why reconciliation has come up is because people got pissed off at Richard Nixon. Well, but, but since George Washington, Congress would raise money, basically tell the president how to spend it, and then the president would have to go and do it. However, what happened in the 70s, Richard Nixon was refusing to spend money on certain projects that Congress had planned to have that money spent on. And so that the kind of informal system that had developed completely broke down. And so it was formalised in the Congressional Budget Act of 1974, which is fun. And essentially what that does is allow lawmakers to change policy on spending or on taxes. You can use this reconciliation process to pass money on, say, on spending, on budget things. You can't use it on regulatory measures like gun control or rewriting immigration rules. Amazingly, there's lots of pun-related processes as well, isn't there? Because Robert Byrd was a West Virginia senator who said he really didn't like these reconciliation bills being used to pass kind of extraneous measures so uh there is what senate insiders call a bird bath isn't there and yeah i know bird with a y steve it's brilliant because you not only have a legislative process but it's a legislative process which is a pun and that means that any extra measure can't really be passed under reconciliation this has been used by lots of different administrations hasn't it so the obama administration in congress then used it to pass bits of obamacare it was used by i think trump to pass a lot of the tax cuts was it used by george w bush as well patrick to pass pass his tax cuts yeah let's say yes yes it, yes it was this is no way to run a 
government, Patrick. I'm really confused. Why is this? Why? <laughs> why is this the thing? It doesn't make any sense. Because the Senate is terrible, but you forgot the other biggest part about the budget relaxation process. It can only be used once a year. Yes. Yes. So they've kind of got once a year. So you, once you use it, you're 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 done until the next fiscal year to it. So um, it's like your three genie, your three wishes for the genie or something. Like as soon as you get monkey paw. Quick, yeah, yes. Quick question: <laughs> When does the is the fiscal year in in this essence like from April to? Oh, start in April. Or does it start in January? For the oh my god, this? that's a great question. I want to find this out because yeah, I don't actually don't... know the answer to that question. Because <laughs> otherwise, it means because basically we could, in theory, get two back to back reconciliation processes doing different things potentially. Do it on day six, three sixty four of fiscal and year. Then day and one, day <laughs> yeah. one of it. They'll be irreconcilable. You might say. Year. Also, typically, Steve done no research and asks the one question <laughs> that we hadn't done any research on. October first through September thirtieth. What is is that when the that American? That is the fiscal year. Is that the American fiscal year? Are financial years different in the because in, in Britain the financial year starts in April in America does it start in October? My my company follows a calendar year fiscal year so. We go January 1st to December 31st. This podcast has just gone off the rails completely. Hasn't it? <laughs> so the US government works to a fiscal year, but the tax year runs to the calendar. Yeah, they, they, welcome, to, welcome to America. They'd also, the state may have a completely different thing than one. The only thing they agree on is what's a quarter. I suppose the other thing, in terms of the, the money, so it can't talk about stuff like uh, gun control, but also it can only be about mandatory spending. So that's spending that's required by law like so like medicaid medicare food stamps it's not about discretionary spending and this is really important isn't it because one of the key things when we talked about the american rescue act or the, the COVID relief stuff one of the things that we said that you said patrick was really exciting was that there was this talk of a 15 dollar minimum wage except the arbiter in the senate has said that the minimum wage can't be debated through reconciliation presumably because in her view it doesn't fit this set criteria of what can and cannot be debated through uh, or can be passed by reconciliation they said it would have to go to essentially an act which you'd require a filibuster proof majority in effect to, to pass which is a bit of a problem isn't it because it means that in practical terms it's impossible to get a 15 dollar minimum wage passed through the relief act yeah, so basically the biggest thing with budget reconciliation is that it has to have an impact on the federal budget. In the case of uh, Trump's tax cuts, it lowered the it impacted by the budget by lowering the tax rate of money coming into the general fund. So because the fact that federal contractors by executive order and most and most one have to pay and the federal government has a bare minimum has has a required starting minimum wage of $15 an hour, it doesn't directly hit the federal budget by changing it, right? It doesn't affect the federal budget, so therefore it's not right to be federal one. But Senate parliamentarians' rules can be over overridden. You can't override a federal. You can like override getting rid of the filibuster, or you know, adding it into a bill and saying, "Oh, we don't need a filibuster," or and overruling the rule of the parliamentarian that this is subject to the to the filibuster rule, but. They could have a vote to override the Senate ruling if everybody 
of all 50 Democrats plus tiebreaker of Camilla Harris, then overrule them saying this is part of budget reconciliation, raising the minimum wage, you could then put it back into the bill. It's unlikely it's going to happen because Joe Manchin's not for it. Sorry, Joe effing Manchin. But at least that the Democrats even have taken an attempt that they're going to uh, pass minimum wage one, and they've tried to put it in there, means they could run on that in 2022 and it's outwardly very popular. So like, but overwhelmingly, this the American Rescue Plan is very, very progressive for the Democrats. Definitely a lot of listening to people, what, what people wanted in the last election and how the, the left and won. The large things, $14 checks, stimulus checks, rental assistance, money for pandemic supplies, expanded unemployment benefits. But the other really huge one is the new financial support for parents related to kids and expanding the, the, the tax credits and child tax credit for children from 3,000 to 3,600, which is actually huge. More expanded tax, cre- tax credits for low-income workers without children. Positive changes to the slush fund that was PPP. Paycheck protection plan, which ended up just being, you know, all large businesses uh, just taking the money because they could without actually showing that they were doing anything. Relief for restaurants and bars, public health. The big one is also money for transit and uh, state and local governments as well is all built into it. But um I would suggest you, uh, Champaniacs, uh, to uh, look it up and, uh, and and read about it because it's probably the most progressive stimulus bill that the U.S. has ever even attempted, much more than even Obama's affordable uh, ARA, Recovery Reinvestment Act. Certainly less controversial than calling our listeners Champaniacs. I, I don't think that went through any form of process before we unleashed that on listeners. No, but that was amazing. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I've been thinking that one for a while. I've been forgetting to tell you guys. <laughs> and and presume and the stuff you've just listed, presumably um, the financial support for parents, extra spending on transit, pandemic rental assistance, all of that will presumably be able to go through the reconciliation process and get passed. Yes. Okay. Only one that probably might have the issue was that exactly the minimum wage is definitely probably the only one, but you could possibly uh, maybe depending on how they, the the Senate bill does related to rental assistance, if they extended a moratorium on evictions or foreclosures, you could see that as being more of a policy issue, but in the house bill, it's rental assistance and, and vouchers. But overwhelmingly, I think most of it, I think the house is mostly the house has their minimum wage in there, but I think everything else has has an impact on the federal budget, so you're probably fine to to consider it. And I think everybody and Democrats are pretty much completely on the same place, with the exception of maybe eligibility for tax credits. I think everybody else is pretty much happy with them. Mansion. I think there's only a couple things that I know, other than minimum wage. It was they were pretty much all on the same side. American progressive activists. They have a similar attitude. Um, they love it. Wow. So what's going to go wrong then? It's because progressive actors want it. Then the conservative do you say, oh, are we sure Amer- middle America is going to like this? And then you go, well, the 68% in favor. For, for your Engl- English listeners, that's all, that is our term for middle England. I think, I'm guessing it would be Joe Biden's call, wouldn't it, about whether or not to override the, ultimately, is it Biden's call to override the decision of the Senate arbiter? Make sure the minimum, the, that $15 minimum wage isn't able to be passed through reconciliation. Is the reason why the Democrats aren't pushing that because I suppose Joe Biden was very keen to sort of govern in a, a bipartisan way, not really wanting to change rules in the Senate as they're set up. Is that decision more about... institutionalist. 
yes. still a Senate institutionalist. Let's think. So, is it is it more about optics? Do you think, or is it more because actually Joe Biden genuinely believes in the institutions? The way he's doing it seems to work. It you know he brought together the whole coalition of Democrats. I mean, yes, Donald Trump was the opponent, but um, I think that Biden doesn't want to see the first thing that Democrats do to be something that's completely party line that doesn't take into any effect. And they're like, well, when we push comes to solve, we just decide just overrule all the the rules to get what we want, because he probably knows, having been in politics as long as he did, and and, you know how they ran his 2020 campaign. That's not how you want to start having control of control of, you know, all the levers of government is something by just just saying, well, F the Republicans now, we'll just do what we want, because, you know, that's two years that's going to run until the next election. So he may see bipartisan as very important on it, but I also think that he's also is an institutionalist. And I think he would like to see Democrats in the Senate play by the rules and then probably give it a chance knowing that it won. And then seven, eight months down the road when he hasn't gotten anything, he may he may decide to go with the nuclear option and say, let's just change all the rules so we can get stuff done. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a big proponent uh, at the moment that I think an awful lot of what the Democrats are trying to do at the moment is is designed for, for optics. They I, I suspect they probably knew there was a risk that they wouldn't be able to get the um, the $15 wage, uh, minimum wage through um, in the reconciliation bill, because very, very quickly, Bernie Sanders started um, kind of going off on talking points about ways that we could, uh, about, about ways that they could introduce, uh, you know, increased taxes for for companies that weren't hitting that, that, that minimum wage level. So it, it, it speaks to me that there is a there is a plan here. They've identified what the potential roadblocks are, and they've then just gone into putting the plan into action as those roadblocks have come up. Uh, as a result, it's all about the optics. It's all about making sure that they appear to be a unifying force. They're not going out of their way to pick a fight necessarily um, with the GOP. Um, and they're going out of their way to highlight how popular the the, the Rescue Act is, um, with the with the hopes that it will uh, get through to people that they are doing something positive and that people like. But it might also just kind of make the GOP sit up, pay attention, and listen, um, and that and realize they can't necessarily get away with the same old silly games they they've done in the past. Yeah, I think the other thing too is that one thing that Democrats I think have learned from the past is that unless you actually make republicans pay a political price by just hitting them over the head like the republicans do you're yeah they can do all this stuff but if you don't spend time just just beating beating them over the head with everything like oh so where were you in the erection insurrection uh you know or uh you know so what are your thoughts on QAnon and, and continuing to hit them back like they would do over you know benghazi it, it doesn't really they matter so they're going to do their shenanigans but you need to show them that they're the one impeding progress and it should work in favor of the republic Demo- democrats should be able to whether any kind of negative impact that that them going through the budget reconciliation process what if they if they you know have a very strong and in- counterattack to republican republican talking points it also apparently if it's if a bill goes through resolution through reconciliation then debate in the senate is limited to 50 hours <laughs> limited to 50 hours <laughs> wow um, but before a final vote, apparently senators can offer an unlimited number of amendments to that resolution, um, which apparently in Senate part, uh, senators call that voterama, um, which yes. is, not, is not a pun, but also a pretty terrible way of putting it. Yeah, 
it will just basically be uh, them just trying to do any kind of, I don't like the word the in subsection, you know, subsection 25, sub subsection A. I don't like the way that the word the is put in there. Like there can be some very dumb amendments that they have to then defeat down. Oh, great. What, from the grammar Nazis? The one far right group that isn't at CPAC. Yeah. Uh, how does that work in your in amendments to a bill in the parliament? Can they be unlimited or do they have to be picked by the speaker to even be brought up to for a vote? And they get picked by the speaker, don't they, for the, for the most part? Um, they get submitted and then, um, you know, certain ones get, get put forward. Um, I'm, I'm assuming with some kind of level of support from the opposition, uh, opposition leader's office or, or whatever, that you don't get that I am aware of kind of like those nitty gritty, you know, we're going to vote on this kind of like minor grammatical detail, unless it actually matters and they can make a serious case for it. In the UK, it's a very different sort of legislative passing culture as well, I think, because you have a, that I'm going to get my, um, technical terms mixed up but because the executive sits in parliament and it's pretty clear like at the moment boris johnson has an 80 seat majority it's the it's the uk budget next week there'll be a budget that is written and it'll get passed on and you know it'll pass there isn't and there isn't really an, an element of pork barrel politics like there isn't going to be a, a yorkshire mp that suddenly tries to attach an amendment to the budget saying can we please build a massive factory in yorkshire you know, or can we build a bridge between Wales and Northern Ireland? There isn't that, that doesn't really happen. A lot of it, I'm guessing, goes to the whips instead, doesn't it? So as you say, Steve, the my, my understanding anyway, amendments go through, they're picked by the speaker, and usually it's a, an opposition amendment or maybe a backbench amendment if there's one that's got significant support. But it's a very different way of doing it because the executive almost baked into Parliament, isn't it? Rather than yeah. America where it's almost happening third hand yeah and, and i think yeah and i think you just have this like and again a lot of the things that happen in like the senate and the, and, and the house like mitch mcconnell's a, a classic example of this the notion of not putting forward anything for a vote could not or would it's basically impossible to happen in the uk because the speaker is the one who moves all of those things and the speaker gets elected by the house separately to to any of the leadership or, and, and anything like that and they become a a, you know, a, 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 a non-partisan figure um, once, once they're in office. So there's an awful lot of things that happen on the US side of things that I'm sure you, you probably could find ways to make them happy. Uh, sorry, make them happen in the UK, but that's very, very difficult as a, as a result of just the institutional history, I suppose, is probably the way to put it. The, the nearest we probably have to a reconciliation process probably works in a sort of similar way where... Um, you might have a bill that is passed by the Commons. The Lords might table amendments to the bill and then the Commons votes on a final version, which sort of has some parallels with the reconciliation process, essentially as part of the reconciliation process, House, Senate representatives probably sit down and try and amalgamate the two bills that, um, that are passed in each respective chambers. But I suppose because in the UK... The, because the Commons has primacy over the Lords, can always use the Parliament Act to steamroll a bill through if it wants to. It usually doesn't matter. And again, usually if you've got a, a government with a majority, they can just ignore any amendments from the Lords. It's not usually a factor. Again, apart from, you know, if you're Theresa May and you 
lose the government's majority and John Burke co-speaker, but that feels like 20 years ago. <laughs> it was probably only about 18 months ago. Wow, yeah. That does seem like ancient history at this point. Um, but the one thing, though, that I think that in terms of the U.S. one is that there isn't some of this all-powerful business as a house is uh, generated by that leader of the house, like Jason Rigmog, who basically says what's going to end up be happening one the related to the proxy voting and stuff of that that stuff. The, there's a there's a wonderful committee that's that's in present in most and it's it, it is present in almost every chamber uh legislative chamber in the u.s called the house rules committee or the senate rules committee the rules committee is this kind of over, overarching powerful one that handles anything that doesn't that does not really fall into another committee committee area so like a budget reconciliation bill if it had to go committee would probably go for a rules committee because it's usually the minority leader majority leader the uh, either the you know this the conference you know the republican conference and and all the most senior president, senator, president, pretend, whatever it is. And they take things like electoral law, like a lot of states in Oregon had this, their electoral, any change in electoral law went for rules committee. They also the ones that dictate and change to set the rules through a committee vote that has to include members from the minority and from the majority and, and, and setting. And then when there's also rules set up about more expanded, say, opposition days. There's rules about how many people get to speak and what happens and stuff like that. And they have to agree to if you can't get over if you can't get over 60 votes for changing related to rules of the House, which is how the Senate works, you have to work with the minority leader to set the the legislative calendar, which isn't always the case of my understanding. The UK kind of doesn't have the it's, you know, as long as you have a bare, uh, you know, a actual majority, you can kind of change the rules of the one proxy voting or anything else. Which can't exactly happen. There, so there is there is some catch, but the the thing that I think a lot of people forget about the Senate is the Senate is based on completely the filibuster is an example of it. That you know, it is a institution that does not change fast, and it it and each the how to run something in the Senate is different to something you run in the House, and they have under the law and under the constitution completely control how things work in their chamber. So they don't, so they, that there's house rules and the Senate rules and they can do things completely different and it's completely legal of how they do it. You know, there is no filibuster in the house and the majority gets you passed in anything. And there's no truth. There's majority requirements, but there is in the Senate. Like, so before the 74 act for reconciliation came in a lot of it was done informally wasn't it i think probably some of it a bit fuzzy to be honest in the detail i wonder if a lot of it is still done informally through the whips and if anyone's watched this house um which was on as part of the national theater live plays but that's um it's a really interesting look at the whips under the wilson government and a lot there's a lot of kind of informal channels between the whips office of the governing party and the opposition who will talk about what business is coming up. I assume there's probably a lot of that still. The Brits would have been proud of the Senate where it was all precedent prior to 1974. And, you know, prior to the six, it was very much, and that's the filibuster has lasted so long because they actually wrote it down and voted on it instead of it just being kind of this precedent thing that they did. And I think there's a, a lot of that related to the Senate. The other thing about the Senate, which was makes changing filibuster and my budget reconciliation has become such a huge thing, especially for Democrats particularly, is that the way that it is set up, there's a guaranteed rural bias 
a rural bias in the Senate, right? So it's easier to, you know, if you're a Republican to win in Wyoming, who gets two the equal amount of senators as California, the most popular state, does. So you end up you end up guaranteed to have uh, to have it, uh, you know, all changing in these rules would probably favor the majority of the pop states would have majority of population, but you, you're not going to see that kind of change. So that because of that, you end up having a much more static, very much more slow moving changes in the Senate. And leaning for that in six-year terms has led them to be a little bit more slower to change in the houses. And that's a nice way, I think, to end the discussion, actually, because the next episode we record, Patrick, will be about the filibuster. So we can talk all about farmers in that episode. Thanks for joining us, Patrick. If you are a champagneac but want to become a champagner, what do you have to do, Steve? That is a, a, a very nice incorporation of both of them there, Corey. Uh, yeah, if you head over to uh, patreon.com uh, slash not enough champagne, you can uh, sign up as a uh, backer uh, on Patreon and you can throw us a couple of quid every month uh, to uh, help support the podcast. Um, the money we get goes on basically covering our costs um and just making sure everything is uh, is up and running if you uh, sign up you'll gain access to unique uh, episodes we recorded uh one uh, episode just before we recorded this um which will be going up at some point in the next few days probably um uh, yeah, those uh, go up quite regularly. There's you know, unique blog content, early access to blog content, all of those sorts of wonderful things are all available if you register as a backer and become a champagner on patreon.com slash not enough champagne. We've recorded an episode with Patrick on the Republican Civil War, or is there? Ooh. Our website's not enough champagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash not enough champagne. James Cram designed our logo. Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Bucky Good Times. The podcast's Twitter page is at No Champagne Pod. My Twitter handle is at Paperback Rioter. I'm at Acoustic Radical. At Peacock11. Come say hi. Happy plotting, everyone. Mm-hmm.